Hi, welcome back to Private Market Talks, a Proscara podcast. I'm your host, Peter Antoshik. Many of our listeners are founders or investors in early to late stage private companies. And those investments by their very nature are illiquid. In today's current market, the hold period is getting longer and longer for these illiquid investments. Because of these trends, there is a growing need among founders, employees, and investors in these companies to sell their shares for liquidity or to rebalance their portfolio strategies. As a result, a narrow segment of the private markets industry, private company secondaries, is gaining traction. The old school process for connecting buyers and sellers of these private market investments is both time consuming and cumbersome. But as with many things today, technology is rapidly changing how these investments are transacted, creating a much more efficient market and fueling the growth of this industry. But what are private company secondaries and what makes them attractive? How does the technology work and what risks should buyers and sellers be aware of in these secondary transactions? Tom Callahan joins me today to answer these questions. Tom is the Chief Executive Officer and Manager of the Board of Managers of NASDAQ Private Market, a leading global technology-driven platform that facilitates the efficient trading of private company secondaries. Tom has 30 years of leadership within the financial services industry. Prior to joining NASDAQ Private Market, he served as the Head of Global Cash Management and a member of the Global Operating Committee at BlackRock. Tom led the transformation of the firm's global cash management platform a $700 billion business, growing it by over $500 billion. Previously, Tom served as the CEO of NYSE Lyft US, a US futures exchange of NYSE Euronext. And prior to that, he held various leadership positions at Merrill Lynch. And Tom also has a soft spot for rescue dogs. As with all our episodes, you'll find a complete transcript of this episode, together with other helpful links at privatemarkettalks.com. And please subscribe and hit like after you have listened. Now, my conversation with Tom Callahan. I want to thank you for doing this. I appreciate you joining us on Private Market Talks. I'm really excited to talk to you because I think the story of NASDAQ private markets is interesting and it occupies an interesting niche within the private markets. So I think that this is going to be an interesting conversation for our listeners and for myself, frankly. Well, I'm excited to be here, Peter. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great honor. Before we dive into NASDAQ private markets, it would be great just to get a little bit of background about yourself. And so your journey, how you found yourself at NASDAQ Private Markets. Sure. Well, this year, and I can't believe it, you know, saying it out loud, I'm celebrating my 30th year in the financial services industry, mm. and I've done an, an awful lot of different things, Peter. You know, I started out at the beginning of my career back in the 90s. I was, I was a bond trader, and those were back in the days pre-algo trading, pre-computer trading, pre microsecond execution. It was trading floors with big gorillas like me. I'm, uh, we haven't met in person, but I'm six foot six. They like big guys because we were intimidating mm. on a trading floor. And that was the sort of equivalent of co-location at the time. That was your strategic edge. Right. So I went from that to today's world where everything is done silently by computers in fractions of a second. So I've seen kind of the full evolution of market structure. And that's been really, really exciting for me. Along the way, I've done a whole bunch of different jobs, but I would say the commonality between all of it after I left trading was either starting new businesses or fixing broken ones. And surprisingly, 
those two things have an awful lot in common. So, you know, I was sent to, to Europe for five years, lived in London with Merrill Lynch fairly early in my career and, and rebuilt their rates trading business there, ran a prime brokerage business back in New York after that. And then right around the time of the global financial crisis, I really got very concerned about the state of the, uh, uh, of the global banking system and thought that a, a good refuge might be to go work for an exchange, thinking that maybe, you know, the OTC markets, which are really at the epicenter of all the problems back in 08, that there may be a big push to on-exchange trading. So I went to the New York Stock Exchange in 2008 and ended up building and being the CEO of their U.S. Futures Exchange, which we actually spun out of the NYSE and created a consortium around that. So I, I built a, an exchange. I built a clearinghouse, which not many people have done. And that business was sold to ICE as part of the NYSE Euronext acquisition back in 2013. I left that to go to BlackRock, uh, world's largest asset manager, and spent nine very happy years there. That went into the category of a, of a business repair. I'm not sure how much you know about the cash management or the money market business, but that was a business that somewhat spectacularly kind of across the industry had fallen on hard times not at BlackRock, but there were other very high profile money funds that broke the buck and needed to be bailed out. And so that the cash management industry, which for BlackRock was one of the core businesses that actually built and helped to found the firm, really lost a lot of assets and, and fallen on hard times. So they asked me to come in in 2013 and rebuild that business. So uh, nine years, you know, we took their assets from 250 billion to 750 billion. So added a half a trillion dollars in assets, rebuilt the tech, the products, the people, everything. And uh, that was really just a fun, fun journey at an amazing company. But I really did miss the startup world and the energy and the passion, uh, having done it once before. And so I was approached in 2022 about this job. And honestly, Peter didn't really know that much about the private markets. I was sort of an exchange and a cash management and an asset management guy. And really- Not, not, just, not many people did, by the way, at that time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what I discovered was this $4 trillion asset class hiding in plain sight. You know, it's four times the size of the crypto market. It's about the same size as the US municipal bond market. But when I looked at it, it honestly looked like the bond market in 1970, or maybe the public equity markets in 1920, just primitive, um, no infrastructure, no data, and uh, just a market that really needed to be completely transformed and evolved, as every other asset class you know, that has seen. So it just struck me as an amazing, unique opportunity to come in to do something really big and really transformational. And I got excited. And, took me back to my entrepreneurial roots. So that's been more or less the, the journey. And so tell me about NASDAQ private markets. It's, it's not part of NASDAQ, just to be clear to our listeners, right? It is. Once upon a time, it was part of NASDAQ, and that's part of the story. So let me pick it up there, which is kind of the birth of NPM, as we call it, NASDAQ private market, and the birth of the private market sort of happened concurrently, and, and what was the trigger? And I'm sure you know all this, Peter, really... The starting gun for the hyper-parabolic growth of the private markets that we've seen was 2012, the passage of the Obama-era legislation, the Jobs Act. And what did that do? It really liberalized the ability 
of private companies to take on more shareholders. There previously had been a cap at 500 shareholders. So as a private company, once you got to 500, you wanted to raise new capital, you were sort of forced to go public. So 20 years ago, the average company IPO'd at, at five years old. Now, here we are in 2023, the average company IPOs at about 14 years. So the Jobs Act just made it easier for private companies to stay private because it allowed, it put the cap at 2,000 shareholders. And so I think in parallel to that, there were some other macro evolutions, the, the hyper growth of venture capital. So not only could you take on more shareholders, there was this massive just reservoir of private capital waiting to be deployed into private companies. Mm -hmm. So those two forces collided. You know, there was 40 unicorns a decade ago. Unicorn, obviously, private company with valuation over a billion dollars. And today there's there's about a thousand. So it's an asset class that has grown. Wow. And so for the the sort of eight, nine years that NPM was part of NASDAQ, it did one thing and it did one thing incredibly well. And it sort of created a new industry, if you will. And that was running private company tenders. There's been tenders and public companies forever. Mm -hmm. uh, but really up until then, there really hadn't been a, a lot of private company tenders. So NPM built a piece of technology and our core client was and, and in many ways still is private companies. So what do they need? When you're a private company, if you're going to wait 14 years to IPO, the majority of private company employees get paid in shares, those shares vest. And at some point along the journey, those employees want to buy houses or pay off student loans or pay for weddings or all those things that people need to do. And if you're a 25-year-old private company engineer, it's awful hard to say, well, uh, you know, wait till you're 39 to buy your first house because that's when you're going to actually get liquidity in these shares. So as the shares vest and people and employees need liquidity, it really becomes a critical retention tool for private companies to be able to convert those vested private shares into cash. And so that's what tender programs are. And so MPM runs tender programs for large decacorns with eight, 9,000 employees and some of the biggest private companies you know, in the world, all the way down to small local hospital systems with 20 or 30 doctors that need to run private liquidity programs and everything in between. So that's what it did for a very long time until 2021, when really, I think a group of global banks got together and were looking at this, this asset class and thinking, we need to find a way to modernize it. We need to create a platform that's trusted, that's institutional, that has real regulation, that has real technology. We need to have a place we can go and transact with confidence because think about a big global bank, Peter, they have a private wealth business that has a lot of entrepreneurs that own private shares, or mm -hmm. maybe they want to invest in private shares and they cover venture capital firms and they cover big buy side firms that have capital that they want to deploy so for a lot of these banks, they're, some of their biggest and most profitable clients are heavily, heavily exposed to private markets. And so not to have a place that they can go and transact with confidence is a serious problem. So they approached NASDAQ about spinning the company out. We are, as you say, an independent company now. We preserve the brand because NASDAQ is such a powerful brand and it engenders so much trust and confidence. So we kept the name but we're now an independent company and we're actually in the middle of our own Series B because, of course, we're a private company ourselves. 
and we're about to add a group of new partners as well. So do you cover any particular sectors or asset classes? The majority of our clients are very tech, health tech focused. If you look at the complexion of, of unicorns, I think something like 70% are in the technology sectors. But as I say, we do all types of different clients in all different types of sectors, but it is very, very heavily weighted towards technology. And in terms of the companies you tend to work with, are there any types or any points in the life cycle of those businesses that you tend to, to focus on more or tend to get involved in more than others? Yeah, it, it tends to be the more mature companies. And we've done companies as small as Series A. But in general, you know, as companies get larger, more mature, take on more employees, especially if they're competing with a public company. Because think about it, if you go to work for a public company, you know, you're given shares, usually in the form of, of RSUs. They vest every three years. And when you get them, you can sell them, you know, on your on your Charles Schwab account. It's a pretty simple, straightforward liquidity mechanism. Well, if you're a private company and you're paying people in illiquid private shares, really it gets to be a critical employee retention tool. So it tends to be larger companies. I'd say mostly when they get within sort of 24 months uh, of an IPO, that's the point where you want to offer liquidity to some of your very early round uh, seed angel investors. You know, you want to clean up the cap table. You want to bring in larger, more strategic investors. Maybe those early round investors that help to get you from you know startup in your mom's garage to to unicorn. You know that their strategic value is less, and you want to bring on new investors. So there's a need sometimes to clean up the cap table. Obviously, as I said offering liquidity to employees. So it tends to be in the later stage that clients that are private company clients tend to get most active. So you described three key aspects of NPM. You said there are three things that the banks were looking for, technology, trusted platform, and a regulated platform. I'd like to touch upon those three things. Maybe you could walk us through how they sort of, how you hit the mark on each of those. And, and let's start with the NPM technology. Can you describe the technology framework of NPM? So our approach, Peter, to this space is, you know, it, it's grown in, incredibly in the last decade. But what has not grown incredibly is the infrastructure to support it. There really is none. And when there is no technology, when there is no infrastructure, what's left, it's just humans in the loop. So what I would say traditionally for most of the last decade, the dominant players in, the, in private secondaries have been small boutique brokers. Their commissions tend to be very high, five, six, seven, eight percent. There's not a lot of transparency. If you're a buyer or seller of private company shares, there's no tape. You can't say, where's the last place this traded? It's a workflow that I'd say has a lot more in common with buying and selling residential real estate than mm -hmm. it does buying and selling a share of, of Apple. It's just sort of this forest of, of friction and inefficiency. And so what am I talking about? The average time to settle a private market trade historically has been about three months. When you wow. transact you know, in, uh, uh, in, in your brokerage account, Peter, you don't spend a nanosecond worrying, oh my God, I just sold those shares in Apple. Is that gonna settle? Is the money gonna show up? Like they never, crosses your mind, well, in the private markets, that's a huge, huge problem because it really is such a clunky sort of analog process. 
And I would imagine also in the types of businesses that you're primarily focused on technology, three months, a lot can happen in three months that really could impact the transaction. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the sort of current state of the landscape is this desperately manual process with lawyers and wet signatures and months and months. And so that's what we're trying to streamline and automate. So what we've done is really focus on the workflow, because one of the unique things that I think maybe people don't quite understand about the private markets is that the company itself is always at the center of a private market transaction, because in almost all cases, companies need to approve a transfer of private company shares. Unlike the public equity markets where they issue equity and it trades and the company doesn't control that in the, in the private space, they do. So if you're a seller, I'm a buyer, you and I agree on price, that's only gets you halfway there. You have to go to the company and get their permission and they have to grant it for that trade to consummate. So what we built in our technology is really more of a workflow management tool. Because if you think about how a bank in this space would service their client, they need to onboard the client. They need to do AML, KYC. There's something called shareholder verification, which is if you say you're a seller of, a sh- of shares, um, there's no DTCC, there's no central registry in the private market. So I can't just take your word for it. I need to actually go to the company. I need to verify that you are who you say you are and you have the shares you say you have and only the mm-hmm. company can verify that. And then there's other doc- documentations that, that need to be uh, signed in advance. And that's all before we match the trade and it feels more like residential real estate. Then yes, you bring the buyer and the seller together and you match the trade. And then we have this lengthy settlement process. So what uh, our technology has done is really built an order management system that streamlines and automates all those processes. So it happens efficiently and quickly in one integrated workflow. So for example, our settlement service can sell trades in less than a week. So Mm. radically improved versus current state of the market. So really we're, we're leading with technology and automation and that's what great tech does, right? Great technology takes clunky, headachey, you know, high friction workflows that no one likes and it streamlines and automates them. And this space is screaming for that. So that's really been our core strategies. How do we deploy technology to streamline an automated workflow with the intention of creating better transparency, better efficiency, and ultimately better liquidity in in the private markets. And I think there's sort of a higher purpose to all this right now, just given where we are in the economy. Obviously, in 2021, there was a liquidity fuel bubble that drove valuations to extremes. And there was huge, huge amounts of money chasing every asset in the private space. And all the frictions, Peter, that I talked about, they existed two years ago. But honestly, there's just this sort of tsunami of liquidity that, right. that, that overwhelmed it. Well, now, obviously, in 2023, we're in a very different world. And all that air has been taken out of the bubble and actually capital is really hard to come by. And Mm -hmm. there are many, many hundreds of great private companies that are innovative with good business plans that frankly are just struggling to get funded because the hangover after the party of 20 and 21 is acute. And someone needs to build a more efficient platform to connect buyers and sellers in this space 
because ultimately it's innovation that's at risk. And if, if great companies that are doing great things that are disrupting and, and, and are innovative and have a really unique opportunity to have a positive impact on the economy, if they start failing just because of lack of capital, lack of access to capital, then I think that that really is a tragedy. And so, you know, that's as we think about what's our purpose as a company, really supporting innovation through efficiency is, is a big part of what we're doing. Got it. And so the second component, you have your technology, which which has created efficiencies in the market. You also described that it has to be trusted. And that was a key component. Imagine that's a, a very important component to your investors. How have you met that need? Yeah. I mean, so part of it gets to how we've set up the company. We're regulated under the SEC as what they call an ATS, Alternative Trading System, which is sort of an exchange light designation from the SEC. The private markets, again, given that they've been dominated by, you know, these small boutique brokers, they're a bit infamous, Peter, for bad behavior. What does bad behavior look like? Well, you know, someone will troll LinkedIn to find, you know, employees or former employees to sell shares. And they'll say, mm-hmm. oh, I have a buyer of your shares at X price. But they don't really, they're just trying to sort of scare up the other side. And we hear that from our, our institutional clients all the time. They're just sick and tired of misinformation, people representing that they have, you know, buyers or sellers where they really don't. And they go to act on a price and the trades sort right. of fall down. And they end up wasting a lot of time and they go to their investment committee because they think they have an actionable, you know, transaction and they go through all that and they go to trade and it was all just sort of a mirage. That's been the hallmark of this space, if I'm very honest with you, and that's really what we're trying to change. So when orders come to our market, they're in that regulated framework and everything is verified and everything is authenticated. Got it. Orders are exclusive to our market. So when you come to transact on NASDAQ private market, you know that the price is real, you know that the counterparty is real, you know they're verified, you know the trade's going to match and it's going to settle. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, what's so special about that? Of course, and you're right to ask the question. That's the baseline that every investor should expect in every single asset class. It just hasn't really existed in the private markets. Can you walk me through a typical transaction, what the structure might be, the fee structure might be, the process, just to, to put put some structure around the concept yeah, of yeah. So, this framework so, that you've described? I should clarify that you know our primary alignment as a company is with our bank partners. We are a bank consortium. Our owners are Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley uh, and Citi. Uh, and NASDAQ still um, one of our largest shareholders. As I mentioned, we're in the process of a fundraise where we're bringing in uh, a group of, of new, of, of, of additional uh, banks as well. So really we view uh, in terms of secondary market liquidity ourselves as a service provider to the banks. And Got so it. we uh, do not have commission brokers. We're a platform. We never want to be in a position where we're competing with our clients. And if we had brokers that were, sort of trying to win clients away from the banks that would sort of fail the, the, the test um, of alignment. Mm-hmm. So the majority of our flow comes to us directly from our bank partners and they have, you know, again, private wealth clients, they have mm-hmm. VCs, they have buy-side investors, whoever owners of private uh, shares are or anyone who wants to invest in private shares. 
I'm also interested in how people access that, investors access, potential purchasers. If you're an investor looking to purchase shares in, in, in uh, a private company, essentially you need to be sponsored by one of these global banks and then you can come directly into our market Got and it. you can post bids, you can post offers, you can transact in our market but always in partnership with a designated bank because we never want to be in a position where we're competing directly against our, our bank partners. So we don't have commission brokers on our platform. We charge uh, flat platform fees. We don't want to be frenemies to our clients. We want to be partners. We want to be a platform and we want to be a technology provider. Makes total sense. So you mentioned a couple of things that I think sound like challenges. And the two that you identified were valuation. And the second is the company needs to consent. I'm sure there are others, but I'd like to start and zoom in on those two. The first one, I think, is a particularly interesting issue, which is valuation, yeah. which creates two issues, at least two issues in my mind that I'd, I'd love to hear your, your view. One is, how do you establish value? How does a seller and buyer have confidence in the value? And second is, what has been the impact of the volatility in value over the last year or so? And how have you managed that to address that on your platform? Yeah, Peter, you just put your thumb on, I think, the most significant challenge facing the private markets right now. Traditionally, at least in a bull market, valuation hasn't been that big of an issue because uh, as companies grew and raised money in successive rounds from A to B to C, you know, their valuations tend to go up. And so if you want to look to see what is the private company worth, you would say, well, where did they last raise money and probably raise money from uh, some of the largest, most sophisticated Sandhill Road venture capital firms and you'd say, well, okay, that's where they all bought in. And so that's a pretty good metric. So it was sort of last funding round plus, and for a long time in the market, that's how valuation was really established in the private markets. Well, what happened in 2022? You saw this radical mm. correction in private market valuations. And you, know, you saw this, you know, headlines of Companies like Klarna, you know, revaluing themselves 85% down. So let's remember, you know, in stark contrast to the public markets where there is a regulated tape where all the exchanges have to publish all their trades. So you right now on your phone, Peter, could, you know, pull up your, 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 your an app and, and find out where any stock is trading in a matter mm -hmm. of seconds. Well, that doesn't exist regulatory requirement for a tape. So if there's no tape requirement, so you can't see where last trades happened. If the last funding round was in 20 or 21, and now you know the, the valuation may be 50, 60, 70% lower, how as an investor or how as a seller of private shares do you figure out where is fair value, where is the market? And, and it's, it's a big challenge. Uh, it's a bigger challenge compounded by the fact that I'd say for about a year from between about June of 22 and June of 23, the private markets were, for all intents and purposes, shut down for exactly this reason. Buyers just had no confidence in what a private company share was worth. There was 10 sellers to every buyer. Bid offers 
widened and transaction volumes, volumes really shrunk to a trickle. So in that world, how do you establish value? Well, a few things need to happen. A, I mean, there has been a lot of macro healing and return of investor risk appetite. And I think a lot of investors are now looking at the incredible discounts available in private secondaries right now. And they're sort of thinking this looks like the real estate market in 2009, you know, where you're buying, you know, portfolios of real estate at pennies on the dollar. So an awful lot of capital has been raised to invest in private secondary. So the buyers have come back. There's obviously been a healing in the macro and the public markets have really rallied pretty significantly off the low. So I think the macro healing has certainly helped. So the other thing that we do is we look at things like mutual fund marks. Where are the largest mutual funds in the world marking these positions? That's mm -hmm. a publicly available data point. That's very, very helpful. There are times where the companies themselves give us financial data that we can use to help value the companies. We can look at things like private to private comparables. We can look at public to private comparables. And of course, we look at transaction volume on our platform. But I guess the long answer to a short question, Peter, is there's no simple way to do it. It's a bit art, it's a bit science, and you really have to stitch together the fragmented information that you have to create something that looks like fair value. And that's a big part of our strategy and our data strategy is to try to create that level of transparency. Now, I think in time, regulation keep, uh, catches up with this and there will be more of a regulatory imperative to create transparency. I mean, you have A, B, B, and C in the public markets. You have things like Trace in the, in the bond markets that is exactly solving this problem, forcing transparency to where transactions are happening. In time, I think that comes to the private markets, but for now, it's left to players like MPM to try to solve that problem ourselves. I would think that your proprietary data, just on trades that you have done, would be an incredibly powerful tool. It is. Trades that match on our platform are, are incredibly valuable. We also, you know, I mentioned this, this concept of building technology and building fundamental infrastructure. One of the pieces of, of infrastructure that we've rolled out is, is the settlement service. And we settle trades not only that happen on our platform, we'll settle any trade that happens anywhere in the private market. Uh -huh. you can trade on a competitor, can match bilaterally, maybe a bank matches buyer and seller themselves, but we can step in and settle that trade. And so we're the exclusive settlement agent for a number of private companies, a number of banks and brokers. So in addition to the trades that match on our platform as the sort of universal settlement agent that gives us access to an awful lot of data as well. So again, all these become inputs mm -hmm. into you know, our data models. One of the other things you mentioned is that the company has to consent. And what challenges has that presented for you or sellers? Have you seen a pushback from investors in those companies or the companies themselves to permit these types of transactions out of concern for, among other things, establishing a value that they may not want to establish at any particular well, it's, time? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a really timely uh, question, Peter, and the answer is, is yes. I mean, it, it's kind of a crazy system, but it's how things work. Can you imagine the CEO of a publicly traded company 
calling the exchange in the morning and saying, please don't let my stock trade below $19 today. Like it's laughable that something like that could even exist. Well, in, in the private markets, that's exactly how it works. Oftentimes private companies will set a price and they'll say, well, my shares aren't allowed to trade below. We won't approve anything below X price. Why? They're trying to preserve their valuation. Maybe they're doing a primary round, whatever motivations, but it's, it's not necessarily always a free market in that buyers and sellers match wherever supply and demand meet equilibrium. They oftentimes match where the companies say that they will. And that's a huge source of frustration because what that does is trap capital. Uh, you have willing sellers that want to sell shares, you have willing buyers, and then that gets blocked by the company that really just sort of freezes the system. So I think a lot of these deals and these transfer restrictions, honestly, were negotiated at a very different time in the market in 2021. You know, I would say there has been a huge shift in thinking around this whole concept of secondary liquidity. A lot of the VCs themselves, historically, Peter, really didn't like the idea of liquidity in private shares. Their view is, listen, we're investing in these companies and uh, everyone's interest should be aligned and you get liquidity when we get liquidity. So someday we'll IPO or we'll sell the company, but until then we're all in it together. So no, no liquidity. That historically has been how a lot of VCs have suffered. It's sort of been very hostile to the idea of secondary liquidity. I will tell you in today's market, that is really shifting. And I'm sure you've seen Interesting. Yeah. impressed a number of big VCs have been reported as being active sellers of their portfolios in the secondary market. Why? Because IPOs are grudgingly reopening now, but very slowly M&A is still at a relatively low level. So the only game in town for them to achieve liquidity, to return money to their investors is the private secondary market. And, and, you know, just to be more specific, the average VC investment vehicles, 10 years. Well, I already mentioned the average private company is IPOing at 14 years. So you've got a bit of an asset liability mismatch when the fund itself is 10 years and you need to return capital at the end of that time and the assets are 14 years. What do you do? You need to sell in the secondary market. So I think this problem starts to heal itself a little bit as new deals are done, new financing rounds are done in today's market. I think that negotiating more liberal transfer restrictions so the company doesn't have the ability to block trades, I think investors are going to demand it because they're in today's world really understanding the value and the need for liquidity in private shares. Any other trends or challenges that you're facing as you're trying to grow this business? We already talked about some of the macro headwinds that are really starting to abate. You know, for us, it's been a really exciting couple months. We really just launched the platform in May of this year and spent most of June onboarding clients. But July and August were phenomenal months for us and really seeing broad adoption of the platform. And I think our timing is good. Our message of being a trusted institutional platform uh, is resonating with the largest investors and, and asset owners in the world. So it's been it's been a really exciting you know couple months for us to see things really scale, and I think uh, our pipeline for the remainder of the year looked very good. You know, I, I think the, the one of the the long term challenges slash opportunities is going to be you know regulation, and I know that uh, it is an item that the SEC is focused on, and a number of uh, SEC commissioners have have commented on the need for greater transparency 
in the private market. I think the view from some commissioners is that, you know, the Jobs Act really wasn't meant to be a subsidy program for, for decacorns. Uh, it was meant to incentivize liquidity on, on Main Street for, you know, very small businesses. But the sort of unintended side effect is it has created really this hyper, hyper growth of private companies. And so there's, I think, a general sense on the back of some of the large private company failures that we've seen, Theranos and FTX and companies like that, that there is a general sense that once a private company gets to a certain size, there should be some baseline uh, requirement for, for, for transparency, not at the level of a, of a public company, clearly, but there should be some baseline of transparency. So right. I think you know, in time, anything that improves transparency uh, in the private market is good for liquidity, is good for innovation. So, you know, we are, um, you know, uh, quietly encouraging of that direction. I don't think it's anything that's going to change in, in the near term, but I think in the medium to long term, uh, all of those forces are really going to improve secondary liquidity. And when you talk about innovation, I'm kind of curious your view on what the role of blockchain and the tokenization of shares might have on your. On yeah, your so we we have a blockchain solution on our platform, and we we think it's really critical. There's a a massive data problem, Peter, underlying all these things that that we're talking about. Because again, without a central registry, without a DTC of the private market. What's the equivalent in privates? It's, it's the company's cap table. And uh, those cap tables change constantly. Every mm -hmm. time he hires or fires, or does a funding round. It's sort of this moving target of who owns what in the company. And, and that's a serious problem because when a company goes to do any kind of liquidity event, you need to know how many shareholders you have and the share counts and, and who owns what. Um, and so, you know, we have a, a blockchain-based registry product that really is a more efficient database. And that's how I think about blockchain for sort of tracking and registering shares in real time to have that cap table update problem solved sort of instantaneously. So blockchain, mm -hmm. I think uh, a lot of people have described the private markets as the perfect use case. If uh, critics of blockchain have said it's a solution in search of a problem. That problem, I think, is the private markets. And so we, and I think some others, are really looking to leverage this new technology to create greater efficiency. The tokenization one, I think, is a little bit more complex, Peter, because, I mean, there are some players in our space that are looking to do that. And I think it is sort of logical and tempting to think, well, great, couldn't you just take private company shares, tokenize them, and then they can trade like a public stock or like an NFT? And isn't that the answer? I think the challenge is that private companies don't want that. They don't want their shares trading like a public stock. They want control. They have these rofers. And so I think, you know, if you ask me in 10 years, is that the right solution? I think it might be. But in the near term, the issuers, the private companies themselves, I don't believe, and they're telling us that's not the solution that they're looking for because it really takes control out of their hands. So on that one, I'll say maybe long-term, uh, I'm slightly optimistic, but near-term, I don't think the market's quite ready for that solution. Got it. Makes sense. So you've been an entrepreneur throughout your career, as you said, building and fixing businesses. And I'm curious what kind of career advice you would have for a person that has that entrepreneurial 
drive and spirit. Yeah, I'm the father of four daughters and I have two that have graduated college in the last uh, two years. So, you know, I've given them the same advice that I'll give you right now, which is, you know, as I, I think as you're starting off in your career, you can afford to take a lot of risk. You can afford to get it wrong. So there's plenty of time to go work for a big company and to be a small cog in a very big machine. But your priority coming out of school really needs to be learning. And so the place that you are going to learn better, um, better uh, value than any MBA is go work for a startup. It's intense. The highs are high, the lows are low, but you know, you're going to find yourself a year or two into startup life doing incredible things with incredible opportunities. And it might take you 15 years to get the, that level of responsibility, you know, in a big mature company. So, you know, do something crazy, start a business, go work for a startup, try to do something crazy and disruptive. Yes, private companies fail all the time, um, but the value of the education and doing that is really going to be unique. So I'm a little bit biased having worked in big companies and in small companies, but I just think in terms of the education, the opportunity, uh, the energy, the fun, the dynamism, uh, you know, it's pretty hard to be, you know, working yeah. for, for, for a private startup. Well, listen, this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot about the private market secondaries, the mission of NASDAQ private markets. I think you, it is an exciting time uh, for your business and you bring, uh, it's clear you bring the energy and imagination and entrepreneurial spirit that's going to drive that business forward. So really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Well, you're, you're so kind to include me, Peter. It's been a lot of fun. And yeah, maybe we can check back in in a year or two and I'll update you on our progress. It's, it's an amazing space Perfect. and it's an amazing time in this space. And I'm really excited for what we're doing. So thank you for having me. And now listeners for the disclaimer. NASDAQ Private Market LLC is not a registered exchange under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. NASDAQ Private Market is operationally independent and distinct from the NASDAQ Stock Market LLC. Securities-related services are offered through NPM Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and CPIC. None of the information provided represents an offer to buy or sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security, nor does it constitute an offer to provide investment advice or service. Investing in private company securities is not suitable for all investors. It is highly speculative and involves a high degree of risk.